and good to see you. And you've probably figured out by now that we're really, as a church, starting to celebrate Advent. We uh, Officially, for people that follow the church calendar, Advent started last Sunday at the end of November, but we're going to really start our celebration of it this Sunday and finish with a bang on Christmas morning. And again, we'll have one worship service Christmas Day. It'll be at 1030, and we'll sing all the big ones and have a great time. And so I hope you can be here for the worship of, uh, of God. But as we start this celebration of Advent, and you know what Advent means. It means a, it means a coming, an arrival. So we're, uh, we're thinking about scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, that help us meditate on God becoming a man. The, the theological word for that is the incarnation. So the theme for, the, for the, really for this month is the incarnation. And I wanted to start in a place that may be very unfamiliar to you, but this is from the fourth book of the Bible, Old Testament, the book of Numbers. We're going to look at a passage from Numbers chapter 24. And I'll try to try to set this up. Numbers chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. That's fine. Uh, 2016 was the year that I finally finished the Harry Potter series. Yes, and there was much rejoicing. Um, I don't know if you've ever read them. I really, they're, they're amazing. And if you've seen the movies, you may have a sense of just the, the, the scale of this story. But the, the writing is really is just quite a feat. One of the characters, one of the many characters that you encounter in the Harry Potter series is a teacher, a professor at Hogwarts. She's the professor of divination, foretelling. And uh, her name is Professor Trelawney. And she's really just looked at by the students as a flake, kind of a dingbat. And she almost wasn't hired. And you find out in um, the Order of the Phoenix how it happened. She, she was the descendant of a great diviner, of a, of a forth teller. And so because she was a direct descendant of this great, you know, great sorcerer, uh, Dumbledore, the head of the Hogwarts school, thought that he ought to talk whether she was interested in a position teaching divination, magic, uh, seeing the future. And so he meets her at the Hogshead Inn. That's like a, like a tavern. He meets her in this upstairs to conduct an interview. And it's just not very impressive and he's just about to just kind of courteously bring it to a close and, and walk off. And all of a sudden, her, her name is Sybil. Sybil Trelawney's voice changed. And she said this. The one with the power to vanquish the dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him. Born as the seventh month dies. And the dark Lord will mark him as his equal. But he will have power the dark Lord knows not. And either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. And Dumbledore gave her the job on the spot. And that prophecy became known as the prophecy in the the Harry Potter world because it was a prophecy of who was going to come to fight and undo Voldemort. It's a, it's a prophecy of the birth of, actually, of Harry Potter. And that, that, you know, is one of many sort of magical moments when you're reading this series where you know something massive and significant has happened. And, you know, it, in the Harry Potter series, in this wizard sorcery kind of world, you have those kinds of things where somebody can look into the future and see something that's actually going to transpire and people make decisions based on this prophecy that hasn't happened yet, that they know supernaturally. Now, 
I just I feel the need to say this every so often because we can we can forget that this is the case. When you say that you believe in the content of the Bible, you are by default saying, I do believe in things like God raising up people, men and women, by the way, who could say things that would happen in the future, and they actually happen. In fact, so much so that God himself said, if somebody comes to you and says that they're one of my spokespeople and they say something, they say, on my authority, in my name, that something's going to happen, and it doesn't happen, that's a false prophet. They're to be dealt with severely. But that that kind of thing really can happen. And this is a moment pretty early in the Old Testament when someone unexpected did this. They actually looked way into the distant future, and they, they saw something. You could actually say that they, that they saw someone, and, and this has already happened by this point in the Old Testament. I'm going to look at that in a second. But this is one of these moments where we're privileged to look back on it and know more of the, the whole story. But you can tell someone is, seeing, someone is supernaturally looking way into the distant future, and they're seeing something that is incredibly significant. And I want to start our celebration of Advent with this prophecy. Here's the context. This is the book of Numbers. The, the, the old title of the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. This is when the Israelites, they've already been to Mount Sinai. They haven't gone into the promised land yet. They're in the wilderness. And as they're in the wilderness, they're encountering people groups that God has said are their enemies. And they are to fight them. And the weird thing is this ragtag nation that were former slaves, don't have a trained military, they're wiping out groups that they shouldn't be able to wipe out. They're experiencing victory they shouldn't be able to experience. So this, uh, this notorious enemy of Israel is Moab, the Moabites. And there's a Moabite king named Balak. And Balak hires a sorcerer. And he says, he says this, look, I'll pay you handsomely. I want you to curse the people of Israel so that when we fight them, we'll have the upper hand. So I want you to curse them. The sorcerer's name is Balaam. And Balaam says to this Moabite king, Balak, I can only say what the Lord, Yahweh, enables me to say. And Balak says, okay, great, fine, just curse them. And so Balaam opens his mouth three times. He goes to different spots. He's looking out over the, the Israelite people. And when he's supposed to curse them, he profusely blesses them. They're going to win. They're going to wipe you out. Their God is amazing. It's like the opposite of what he's been paid to do. And Balak, get, it says, he got so mad he struck his hands together. Why did I even pay you? And then Balaam says, there's one more oracle. And he says this, Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. We pray now, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, something that I like to put before us when we're together sometimes is when people describe how we come across to them, when I say we, I'm just using that collectively for people that would identify as Christians. And, and you may be here this morning and you're not yet a Christian or you, you're not ready to identify yourself as a Christian. If that's the case, I'm so glad you're here. But this is a critical mass of people who would say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm part of the church. I follow Jesus. Uh, in a book that came out a few years ago called Unchristian by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, some research about perceptions of, of the church today. And here's a quote. One of the surprising insights from our research is that the growing hostility toward Christians is very much a reflection of what outsiders feel they receive from believers. They say their aggression simply matches the oversized opinions and egos of Christians. One outsider put it this way, most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone, and they generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. And when I saw that quote, it struck a chord with me because the professor that Jake and I had in seminary, who was sort of the, 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 the main person training about how do you spread the gospel? How do you talk to someone who's not a Christian? How do you uh, do apologetics and reason with someone who's not a Christian? He would say over and over and over, and he was a guy who had lots of non-Christian friends. This wasn't just ivory tower stuff for him. He would say over and over, the non-Christians that I build relationships who will really open up to me say that they think that Christians hate them. They just, they, and that's exactly what that research says. That's how we, we come across and the irony of that is that, you know, I want to say the Bible talks a good bit about love and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, things like that. But specifically, one of the things that our, our most influential, one of the most influential figures, I hope the most is Jesus, but a very influential figure is the Apostle Paul. And here's one thing he wrote about Christian, uh, what, what we'd call Christian war. Who's the war with? And he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The war is not with your neighbor. The war is not with the person who disagrees with you. The war is not with the person who cannot stand the church and can't even stand any kind of religion. The war is against what Christians in the past have called the unholy trinity. The devil, who is a real figure in the Scriptures and was real to Jesus. The devil, the flesh, 
not physicality, not your body. God made your body. He likes the body. The flesh is the biblical term for that residue of the, the way I showed up at odds with God that is still resisting him, still disobeying, still pushing him away. That's the flesh. And in the person who doesn't know Christ yet, the flesh calls the shots. The devil, the flesh, and the world. And the world is not so much that person or that person. It's, it's a global system of hostility to God. It's like the flesh at, at a global scale. That's who we wrestle against. And we don't wrestle by trash talking. And we don't wrestle by funding this or not funding that. We wrestle through proclaiming the gospel and through loving our neighbor and through getting on our knees and going to bat, even for the neighbor who doesn't like me. That's how we, that's how we wrestle. That's how we fight. But here's the thing. In the history of the people of God, there were real fights. There were flesh and blood enemies. Uh, the people of God before Christ, especially way back in the older parts of the Old Testament, had actual people groups that were their actual enemies. And it was God's instruction, go to war with them. In fact, he would even sometimes say, wipe them completely out. However you feel about that, whether you agree with that, whether that completely uh, goes against the grain of your heart, it happened. It's in the record, okay? That's the context of Balaam and Balak. Balak is scared as the king of Moab, the enemies of Israel, that he's going to be on the receiving end of that. Israel has come out of slavery and their record is really successful so far. So he hires this man named Balaam, a sorcerer, somebody who knows divination, to curse them. So here's, here's what I want to look at. This is a short prophecy. What does Balaam see and that, that's actually the name that's given uh, in the Bible sometimes to prophets, to people who can foretell. They're called seers. What does Balaam see, and what does it mean? All right? hope that's straightforward. What does he see? What does it mean? Um, he, now, I mentioned this earlier. He sees something that an earlier figure in the Bible has already seen. And Numbers, is pretty, that's pretty old. The beginning of the Bible is what? Is Genesis. And there's a scene at the end of Genesis. It's the next to the last chapter. Now, I know I'm throwing the sink at you, but you got to hang with me because it's Christmas and you owe this to me, okay? Oh, we, have, we haven't even gotten to Obadiah yet, but that's coming up. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to... Israel, very good, you are hanging with me. And Israel had the, the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes. When Jacob was about to die, he, he said something. And, and a lot of commentaries pointed this out. He said this in a way that parallels the way Balaam talks. He says, gather close. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days, the days to come. And in, in the Hebrew Bible, that term can mean the latter days of what I can picture, what I can anticipate. 
But it's, a, it's kind of a flexible term. It can also mean, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen at the culmination of history. It can mean either one. So Jacob gathers his sons and says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. And this is in your bulletin in italics. It says, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And he goes, son to son, what's your future? And then he says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's one of his sons. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So he says, come to me, and I'll tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. Judah, the rule will come from you. The scepter will be from Judah. Well, then... A good bit later, you've got this man who's not an Israelite, and he sees, he seems to see the same thing. Now, the first part, he just, he kind of talks about him, he introduces himself, verses 15 and 16. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. By the way, pause. At this point, do you think that he has a relationship with God? The New Testament is explicit that he does not. That he was an enemy of God. In fact, the Israelites end up killing Balaam. Now, here's what he sees, and here's the real meat and potatoes of this prophecy. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So, the him is the star. He is the scepter. The scepter is he. If you combine it with what Jacob said it's going to be a man who's an Israelite, who's a ruler, connected with what Jacob said. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. So, what's he going to do? Second part of verse 17. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy shall be dispossessed. Those are names of notorious enemies of the people of God. All right? What does it mean? Let's think about it this way. Um, Both Jewish, and it's really cool to dip into this more this week, Jewish and Christian interpreters of the past have said, it seems to be a description of King David, especially Jewish interpretation. Nobody, I mean, because he was a ruler, he's the Israelite holder of the scepter. Going back to Jacob's thing. By the way, in downtown Presbyterian, this is always the past, this side of the sanctuary. Y'all are stuck in the past. This is the future. I guess it's because that's left to right to you. I don't know why I always do it that way. I will always do it that way. If I don't, then I'm, I'm not well. They look ahead. They see this man. It seems to be King David. Nobody stuck it to the Moabites like King David. Nobody stuck it to the Edomites like King David. But the problem is he didn't wipe them out. Now, I could 
list a lot of verses here, but I put one more in the bulletin. This is from Second Chronicles. That's late in the history of Israel. That's, that's way on out there. This latter king, it says, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Well, why does he need help? For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And this is where I have to do a little bit of a visual. And man, are the people listening on the podcast going to miss out on this one? All right. From past to future, here's Jacob with his 12 sons. And he says, Judah, the sept, he's looking out. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. The scepter shall not depart from you. And they die. And then later, you've got this man named Balaam. Israelites are in the wilderness. This man named Balaam says, I see him. He's a scepter. He's a star. He's going to wipe out Moab, crush his forehead, wipe out the Edomites, wipe them from the face of the earth. And then he does. So then King David comes along, and no one ever took it to the Moabites and the Edomites like King David. He takes it to them, but he doesn't completely wipe them out. And then he does. But, okay, that, now here's the rub. King David gets at the prophecy. He approximates it. But the prophecy is annihilation of the enemies of the people of God. David dies, and they're still out there. And then you've got prophets that come along after David dies, like Obadiah. The theme of the book of Obadiah, which is not super familiar to most of us, is the destruction of Edom. The future, Obadiah as a prophet is looking in the future saying, the Lord is going to wipe out the Edomites. And then he does. Now, I know what all of you are thinking. At least if you've been around here for a while, you're thinking, I know where you're going with this, but then Jesus came. And, um, and his birth was foretold by a star. That is true. And he was born, and he fought no Moabites. He fought no Edomites. Did not fight the He didn't fight anybody. It cost him his life. And he dies and rises again. But this is where it's great that we have the whole Bible. Because I'm going to go way out here. And virtually the last thing that Jesus says in reference to himself, this is almost the end of the final chapter of the book of Revelation. He says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. End of the Bible. Now, what does that mean for us? Sometimes in Scripture, a person or a people or a place or an event is a way of conveying a whole bunch of other things. In this prophecy, Moab and Edom and the sons of Sheph, what do they represent? They represent everything and everyone who's at odds with God. The enemies of God and his people. So what does that mean for us 
as we're beginning to celebrate Advent. And here's how I want to end. Bad news and good news. Here's the bad news. And there's so much sentimentality about Christmas and the birth of Jesus and baby Jesus. And he was a baby. But there's so much sentimentality about it that I feel like I've got to really turn the knob up on what his second coming means. That was his first coming. But there's a second advent that we wait for. At the second advent, Jesus Christ comes and he defeats all his and his people's enemies. He he doesn't show up looking like Jewish peasant. He shows up looking like what he's always been, king of kings and lord of lords. And here's the thing. Balaam is a cautionary tale. The Apostle Peter says this. Jude says this in the New Testament. The book of Revelation says this, that Balaam was not a man of God. He was a false... Well, he, he could see the future on this occasion, but he did it for profit. And he's an enemy of the people of God in the New Testament. But he spoke God's words. A man who's the enemy of God said... I hear the word of God. I know the knowledge of the Most High. I see the vision of the Almighty. Did you know that you can do a call to worship and say the Old Testament words and the New Testament words? Did you know that you can sing about the one true God and sing about Jesus Christ? Did you know that you can take communion? You can go to Young Life. You can be involved in RUF in college. You can read Christian books. You can do those things and not be the people of God. That's a cautionary tale. And I, I need to ask this question. Could that be you? You can join downtown Presbyterian Church. And we ask for a, what we call a credible profession of faith, a profession of faith in Jesus as Savior. You could, but you could say the right words, but not really have ever bowed the knee to him and say, I belong to you. I need you to give me what I cannot give myself. I need you to redeem me because I cannot redeem. I I don't even know really what that means. Balaam never did that. At the second coming, every man, woman, and child is either in Christ, united to him, connected to him, hidden in him, or they're not. And the reason he says, hey, don't you take vengeance, is he says, at the end, the reason you don't have to take vengeance is because I will take vengeance. That's why that Bonhoeffer quote is on the front. We, we sentimentalize the coming of God in the flesh. It is a sobering thing that God came and will come in the flesh. Bad news for his enemies. But here's the good news. He will defeat all his and our enemies. And I have to be very vague in ending this way, but besides being the year that I finished Harry Potter, let me tell you a sadder thing. 2016, hands down, and I don't know why it worked out this way, hands down, 2016 is the year where I heard more of you talk about your experience of injustice. And it might have involved family. 
it might have involved advocating for a child. It might have, advoca- uh, it might have involved uh, your personal finances or belongings. But you tried to do the right thing. You tried to cross your T's and dot your I's and take the high road and be what you thought God wanted you to be. I'm not saying any of us did it perfectly, but I'm saying you, you tried intentionally to do that. And you met with something that we don't usually meet with. Because typically haves, and most of us are haves, typically haves get justice and have-nots don't. But some of you this year have shared with me, you got injustice and it just knocked the breath out of you. And it, among other things, whatever other loss of money or inconvenience or broken relationships, it leaves you going, why did, why did God let that happen and why, why doesn't God do something about it? And we think those are two sides of the same coin. Those are two different questions. Why did God let that happen? We don't know. God does what he does because he has wisdom that we don't have. He's knit the whole tapestry that we don't understand. But then we ask, why doesn't he do something about that? And what we really mean is, why doesn't he do something about that right now? The biblical certainty, not just promise, the biblical certainty is that he will do something about everything, just not yet. Um, we had a staff breakfast a few days ago, and most of us were there, and we were talking about the, the song, uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Longfellow. Do you know the words to that? It says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. Um, you know, the, the words repeat, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's like, it's Christmas time, I hear all the bells and the steeples, and, the, and they're ringing, and it's just saying, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And th- this is really great. And then he's honest. He says... And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. Hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then what's the last stanza? Then the bells pealed more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that would be a pipe dream if it weren't for the reality of the second advent. A pagan sorcerer looked into the distant future and he saw a man who is a star, who has a scepter. He will come again. For those who turn to him, what you will see is the smile and the warm face of your Savior. But he will also be the man who comes to finally vanquish and crush all sin, all evil, all injustice, all poverty, everything broken and horrible and wrong with us in this world. He will come and defeat it. For people that live in a messed up world and people who are messed up themselves, That is extremely good news. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.